0: Hello and welcome. My name is Joe O'Mara, I'm the Head of Aviation Finance with KPMG and on behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, I'm delighted to be joined by James Myler. James is the CEO with Rx Aviation. He's joining us for the purposes of our Leaders Report. I should say we're recording this in late November in Dublin. James, thanks as always for joining us. Um, Before we get into the meat of the discussion, do you want to tell our watchers just a little bit about Rx Aviation?
1: Sure. Thanks for having me, Joe. RX Aviation, we're a 100% subsidiary of RX Corporation, which is a Japanese uh, headquartered, very large financial institution, uh, listed on the Tokyo and New York Stock Exchange, A-rated entity. Um, the aviation group's headquartered in Ireland with teams in Dubai and in Tokyo. We've over 200 aircraft worth around 8 billion. We also have a 30% shareholding in Avalon, and I'm a board director of Avalon as well. Uh, RX is probably a little bit, kind of unique in, in its positioning, in terms of being a much very active asset manager, uh, trading company, um, as well as a kind of a traditional lessor. And we're very active in the Japanese operating lease market as well, which is really one of our core products.
0: And, and James, obviously that's a huge breadth of activity across Oryx and, and yeah, your investment in Avalon. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you've seen the recovery progress through 2022, and just what opportunities you're seeing out there in the market at the moment? Sure. I mean, I think as we've all seen, the recovery has been uh,
1: unequal. You've had the U.S. lead lead the charge early on last year. Huge kind of domestic travel and uh, you know, U.S. South America travel. Europe equally domestically had a very strong re- uh, rebound. Um, and I think more, more laterally in the year, we're seeing the, the transatlantic market really come back. Uh, Asia is still very much the laggard. Um, domestically, in, in many kind of non-China countries, uh, there's been good domestic recovery, but in obviously China is still very much behind in terms of the restrictions. So it's been a very, very uneven recovery, not just in passenger travel, but I think also in you know government supports as well, where again mostly Europe and the US seem to benefit more from government subsidies. Um, and that has also then helped with the with their positions of the airline when they reopened, whereas out in, in Asia there have been limited government supports and much greater uh, restrictions on travel. So that's kind of been the how it's played out. In terms of the opportunities Uh, Clearly, there's been a really unique market because you've had OEMs, reduced production, so there's been a limited supply of new aircraft essentially to finance. Um, But when there has been, the good credit airlines, of course, uh, have have basically had a huge demand uh, for their products, so therefore the pricing has remained tight. Um, and then the the kind of more struggling airlines obviously are, are finding it difficult to fund uh, to fund their deliveries, and equally lessors who are in a you know themselves recovering from the pandemic are probably a little bit more reticent to take on some of that extra risk. So it's been a as I say an unusual marketplace where the opportunities kind of are. Um, uh, to be to be frank, relatively uh, kind of few and far between because of the nature of the deliveries. But I think just, that's
0: going to start to to un kind of unwind itself as we come into next year. And maybe to pick on that point, right? And on, on the trading, are, are we effectively in an environment where the trading market is a little bit dysfunctional, as you say? You know, you you haven't had the big players probably selling down the way they have because the OEM side just. What do you think is needed for that to uncork? And do you think it does, has been that little bit dysfunctional in recent times?
1: Yeah, I think it's, again, there's been, the pandemic has had so many different effects, essentially, on the the ecosystem that is kind of the, not just the aviation market, but the lessor market specifically. Typically, the large lessors with very large order books would have a certain amount of trading activity, uh, A, for profitability, B, freeing up capacity for new aircraft, um, and they kind of had, they kept their growth path from the order stream. Um, what we've seen then has been because of the OEM uh, reduction of production but also many less ores early on in the pandemic uh, you know, made what was you know, the, undoubtedly the right decision at the time to defer uh, order positions as well, given that the, there was such uncertainty. So by deferring a lot of their 22 and 23 positions, coupled with the manufacturers reducing production so much, those kind of large lessors that have typically fed the trading market have really been unable to sell because they wouldn't be able to meet their metrics for their, you know, their investment grade um, kind of cash flow positions and indeed their growth. A story, essentially, for be it the stock market or again for the bond bond market for their for their for their uh, investment grade ratings. So what they've done is essentially stops trading largely over the last you know one to two years. At the same time, then many of the airlines also deferred their order their own delivery positions, or indeed the manufacturers have uh, slowed down production to the to the to the kind of effect that there was very very limited sale and leasebacks as well. Um, And really the pandemic caused that on several ways. One is the supply chain essentially, which has caused the the problems, but also the deferrals. Um, Then you have essentially a lot of airlines also having gone into bankruptcy restructurings. So a lot of aircraft then maybe got rejected or they were on power by the hour deals or whatever. So those assets kind of became untradable for a period of time until those restructurings were successfully completed. And the power by the hour periods have expired or are expiring over the next number of months. So all of those things have kind of uh, kind of come together essentially at the same time uh, for a perfect storm of very limited trading activity. Um, I would believe though that as we see you know Airbus and Boeing start to ramp up production again, and the supply kind of chain kind of freeing up somewhat now. There's all issues at the engine side of very much still uh, in terms of deliveries. But as they come back on stream. You could arguably there's a almost a perfect storm in the other way now that because of the bond market being potentially closed or very difficult for for raising access to funds now many of the larger lessors are likely to look to the trading market to fund themselves Um, and they'll be able to do that because they're going to have the new deliveries coming in so i think 2023 2024 is going to see kind of actually the kind of almost the exact opposite of what happened before where there's production rates are back back strong the Big Lessors actually will sell probably more than they have done in pre-COVID times to help fund themselves for the new delivery slots. Um, and then you know, Lessors like RX essentially that are interested in buying aircraft that are already on lease more than the speculative uh, order positions, are we would be delighted essentially to take up those acquisitions. So I think that's that's kind of dynamic is going to swing full circle
0: basically over the over the next year. And and maybe to delve into that as it does come back, your thoughts on asset values, right? And maybe that's hard to gauge. Uh, We're in an inflationary environment, but maybe not enough trading to properly peg it. And the second bit about pricing, right? We we might chat properly on interest rates in a moment, but we've seen them significantly uptick with a lot of volatility, which arguably should be leading into lease rate factor. Anecdotally, it seems to be ticking up, but not at the same pace. Can I get your thoughts on where kind of asset values and lease rate factors are likely to go in the near term? Yeah,
1: it, certainly, I think it takes a little bit of time for the inflationary effect to come into the a- aircraft values, especially on if you take the new positions, many many lessors and, and airlines have you know, capped inflation deals, um, ca- capped escalation essentially with the manufacturers. That will feed in, in some inflation on new deliveries, but it's going to take probably a bit more time for that to kind of really filter through. On the flip side of that, existing aircraft deals with fixed lease rents in place, the inflationary effect has, has, will have some beneficial output on, on the residual values. Um, obviously, the, you know, as the maintenance costs escalate and the part head values and the LLP values and everything will all play out into a higher residual. But the, the fixed rate leases will be under somewhat pressure because of the cost of funding now. So you kind of have this dichotomy where, for new deliveries, you'll see the benefit of inflation both on the, the delivery price and on the residual value, uh, and probably indeed on the actual lease rates that have ticked up in line with with lease rates. Um, sorry, with interest rates. But when it comes to existing deals, the inflationary effect, I think, unfortunately, is going to be relatively kind of. Limited or muted to the residual value side of it because the you know the,
0: the the lease rates are fixed and the funding costs have gone up on those aircraft. And and maybe just holding in that on interest rates and the other kind of challenges we're facing, right? So we we speak to a recovery, which is great, and that's driving optimism. But both the macroeconomic and geopolitical environment just is, is doused in uncertainty. So interest rates shooting up and still volatility. We've spoken about inflation. We've also got U.S. dollar causing issues and oil is moving around. When you're sizing up those challenges around macro and geopolitical, what are you most concerned with? Ultimately, it's the airline's credit and the airline's strength
1: to be able to survive is what all lessors underwrite in reality. So looking at the airline's ability to be able to continue to fund itself, whether it has exposure, obviously US airlines are somewhat benefiting from the strong dollar. Um, whereas certain emerging market countries, obviously, the dollar is very, very penal to them because of the, you know, basically most of their most of their costs or two thirds of their costs are in in dollars. So typically for for lessors, it's it's really looking at that the ability to weather that storm. Um, clearly, there's going to be certain geopolitical risks that are uncontrollable, like Russia is and was, um, but. Generally speaking, you know, kind of across the spectrum of all all the countries in the world where aircraft lessors operate, um, the geopolitical side, while a concern, I don't think is the you know can be or is the overriding concern um, that that you can control anyway. Um, interest rates clearly are you know very important for probably for the lessor maybe more than the airlines, um, but the, the the kind of the, the currency side together with interest rates is what could be the kind of the the, the real kind of combination of issues for heavily indebted airlines. Airlines have come out of the out of kind of the COVID pandemic hugely more indebted, of you know, two hundred billion dollars more indebted. That debt is now much more expensive because of interest rates. That put pressure on their cash flow. And then if you layer on top the dollar effect of oil price and our lease rates. Um, versus their own currency, it's that kind of deadly combination really of, of dollar and interest rates being very strong and high is the thing that's going to kind of cause the, the most uh, issues essentially for
0: defaults. And, and, and looking at that with that lens and those challenges, we obviously had the government sports which probably pushed out a lot of uh, airline failures, um, are you expecting more airline failures in the near term or is it just too early to tell?
1: I think, unfortunately, yes. Um, I'm expecting more because what you've had is clearly, with the pandemic, um, when things normalised, it was always going to kind of show, kind of whether people had the strength and the the ability to kind of carry on. I think we said this probably in the previous discussions a year or two ago. We'd have to wait till things normalised and cash flows resumed, where lessors and banks, kind of the forbearance, um, had been kind of come to an end. Then it was going to be a case of people being able to stand on their own two feet. I don't think anybody kind of expected that when we got through the pandemic, you would have you know kind of what the geopolitical storm that's kind of happened with the Ukraine Russia uh, conflict and the knock-on effect that's had on everything from obviously oil prices to interest rates and to inflation and to the dollar. So those things have kind of. They weren't expected, I guess, when people came out of the pandemic. All we were worried about was people flying again and how quickly people would fly again. That's happened, as we all hoped and forecast, but the airlines with higher indebtedness and these new co- new pressures essentially on cost means that the ones that either didn't restructure during the pandemic and were kind of you know battling to get through it, they would have been able to get through it only for the, these, this new interest rate environment and the dollar environment, but because they've come out of it so indebted, it's going to be very, very difficult for many airlines to not restructure. So I think there will be quite a bit. Now I also think what we've seen is, in general, there's been very you know, successful restructurings rather than closures. So I think there's kind of a there's a well-trodden path now for airlines to restructure in cooperation with all of their creditors. Um, and I think that 's what we 're going to see a lot of uh, through this winter unfortunately um, and there 's not really much that the, the airlines can do about it because they've as i said they 've limped out of out of the pandemic and now they find themselves essentially in positions where the the, the, the cost base just can 't support the, uh, their position their current de- indebted position.
0: And maybe moving to the aviation debt markets, and, and you mentioned around the kind of unsecured market, maybe we'll start there on capital markets. We saw the IG rate of lessors fill their boots very cleverly and wisely and cheaply in, in 21, and, and clearly post-Russia 22, in the interest environment we've seen very little. Same on the ABS side. Where do you see that market going? As you say there will be a need for those lessors to go back to the market, definitely to some degree in twenty three, probably to a very large degree in twenty four. As and when they do, do you think they just pay whatever the basis point increases generally, or are you worried that maybe aviation finance will be seen as less attractive when the IG rate of lessors go back?
1: I think, first of all, there's going to be the the general global macro. There's been the longest period of time in, I think, in 50 years in the bond market, where no bonds have been issued by any company, not just aviation. So this isn't just an aviation specific issue. It's definitely um, essentially a a general market issue. I would imagine that this is going to continue into into the first quarter, at least of 2023, where effectively the market will remain closed or largely closed. and then essentially what will, will will drive the kind of the pricing is going to be what very large um, investment grade corporates that are not aviation issue at. And ultimately aviation will be issuing probably wider than those. So there, it's going to be a question around what kind of the general bond market is pricing at, as to whether it's going to be an effective or efficient way of funding. Um, I mean, the, the reality, while, you know, while it is an expensive uh, source of funding compared to where it's been in the last several years. In reality it's not compared to what it was only three, four, five years ago. So I think that's the other big question mark really is that what is the normal long-term kind of average cost of funds for an investment grade lessor? And kind of there will be periods above and below that, but as but kind of because of how well many of the investment grade less less ores have funded their average cost of funds are at the moment incredibly low and even with a, you know a period of time of issuing at higher rates their average cost of funds is still going to be very good once the market normalizes some point in 24 25 uh, and i think that's probably what's going to be the more realistic outcome is the, the the lessors will use a certain amount of trading to reduce its you know, requirement into the bond market. They will issue certain you know, uh, bonds essentially in 23 at some point when the markets are as attractive as they can be versus their peers in the kind of the, the non aviation industry, and um, and that combination then will will be a higher cost for 23 for sure. But I think. As I say, the average is still good, and as long as kind of they're able to get back to kind of a 24, 25 funding at, at better rates, then the position should be you know, sustainable.
0: And, and maybe looking then at the rest of the market, so you have the IG rate of lessors. you have guys that have very strong parents with lots of backing behind them. Um, what do the other guys do, right? So so are, are we in a situation where scale, which has always been important, is even more important now? And if you can't have that strong parent or that ability to tap unsecured and the other funding sources, that you're kind of playing in niche, right? And 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 you'll just be very challenged to have growth of a significant material amount. Yeah, for sure. I mean, ultimately, you know,
1: Rx, we're, uh, our parent is an A-rated entity. Our, most of our, comp- competitors in transactions we do, our investment grade or are essentially owned by investment grade entities and there is no way that you could be competitive in the, especially in the blue chip airlines where the, the yields are still relatively tight. You can't be competitive there unless your cost of funds are competitive. So. Simple, kind of, it is simple maths. Essentially, if someone is paying a lot more for their debt, they can't. The profit, if they compete at the same level, their profits are 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 less. Basically, so I think there's no question of that. That we're back in that kind of where it was historically, where people kind of did play to their niche, essentially, um, and that you can only access large-scale funding if you're investment grade or owned by investment grade. And alternatively, you have to essentially play in a different space where you're either in older aircraft, higher yielding deals, higher risk portfolios, whatever it may be. That, that's always been the case up till a couple of years ago, um, that that's, you know, if, you, if you're going to pay more for your debt, you essentially need to put, get more income for your aircraft, and the only way you can get more income is to
0: move out the risk profile. And on the investor side, can I get your perspectives? Obviously an asset manager, you would have lots of discussions on the investor side. We had seen probably at the outset of COVID and has probably followed through in the last couple of years, lots of interest, particularly in private equity. Um, you know, you would have a, a, a good perspective on Japan, uh, given Arx's long history there. Your thoughts on investor profile coming in aviation finance, any trends post-COVID that you found interesting? Or is it kind of similar classes of investors, names might change, but it hasn't changed materially? I, yeah, I
1: think you're starting to see a shift, probably away the private equity guys Obviously, you know they tend to move around depending on where the opportunities are, and are looking for you know higher returns and typically a shorter you know period of time in a, in an asset class. They rightly assume that the COVID pandemic would give huge opportunities for distressed. Uh, buying that actually hasn't materialised, partially because lessors have, you know, proven their business models are so resilient. Essentially, that even through the pandemic and and what's going on, that they're they're able to remain, you know, kind of uh, sufficiently funded, that they're able to survive on their own two feet. Which meant there hasn't been those opportunities. Um, and also they've seen losses in some of the assets that they did pursue either because of bankruptcies or Russia and the like. So I think private equity is definitely you know reducing rapidly um, in terms of what we're seeing either fully exiting or just stopping investment and um, that is really we're seeing that happen quite a bit. I think what's what I've, and I've always thought this really is that you know it, it is a very long-term asset, and that's why it's suited for many of the Japanese investors, but also for the insurance company type investors. Um, and I think what we're seeing now post pandemic is more insurance money kind of becoming interested in the space because they've seen what the space has been able to weather. The you know kind of the the kind of incredible uh, disruption to the industry the pandemic caused, obviously the issues now with kind of you know, the geopolitical issues, um, and that yet less ores have been able to come through that successfully, that suits the insurance company's risk profile. And generally speaking, the yields in reality are not, you know, they're not at the level that typical private equity firms seek, whereas they are actually at the level of insurance companies seek. And for blue chip airlines, new aircraft types, they are actually also relatively low risk, low volatility. Um, so on the basis of that kind of risk profile, the return levels in the high signal digits uh, are appropriate for the risk of those asset types and are appropriate for the insurance market. And we're definitely seeing the insurance market money becoming a bigger bigger
0: and bigger player, I think. And, And maybe looking at leasing in the macro sense, we have seen you know definitely a shift driven by COVID um, on the popularity and importance of leasing as you mentioned airline balance sheets becoming more decimated kind of crystal ball gazing you know we've breached the 50 percent threshold do you see that trend line which is a long-term trend line of upwards continuing to go upwards or do you think it'll come a point in time whereas airlines balance sheets potentially right get a little bit stronger that that they're happier kind of bringing more on balance sheet I
1: mean, look, I, I think I've always said to you in many of these interviews that, that, you know, in one respect, the largest hotel groups don't own any hotels, and arguably airlines shouldn't own any aircraft. That actually, It's very possible, I think, eventually, that basically they're, the lessors own all of the aircraft. Um, it, that is a kind of a, a possible outcome. Um, well, you were 60% last year, around 100% <laughs> now, I'm very but happy I, with I this. I certainly <laughs> think, you know, clearly some airlines will always either want to own yeah. or um, or for, for whatever reason they have themselves um it that may happen eventually but it may be beyond my time frame but i do think that certainly the 60% number that i was yeah probably one of the few saying several years ago i think the pandemic has absolutely made that a, a certainty i think at this stage where really the only way for airlines to fund their their business models are to be able to kind of use the, the lessor channel for selling and leasebacks and or leasing in aircraft. Um, and ultimately, ultimately, if you think about it, it is back to it makes the most sense because of the the flexibility it gives them, the ability to have new products more regularly for their customer, especially in the kind of changing, um, you know, con- changing competitive dynamics that's going on now in the world where you've got so many kind of very uh, competitive, low-cost uh, carriers in the world that are offering a good product as well as a good price. That kind of the days of you know flag carriers essentially being able to just kind of roll out the same product with old aircraft because people were loyal to them is gone essentially. So for them to be able to replenish their fleet more frequently, the leasing channel is still one of the best ways to do that. Um, and it gives huge flexibility to airlines, and also ultimately, as we've seen for 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 financiers, the lessor is a far better risk partner than an airline because of as we've seen the lessors weather all these crises over the last forty years. Um, where because of the diversification of the lessor model, it's a far better risk profile. So for a, an investor, bond provider, or just a bank, they're they're going to be essentially more comfortable. Apart from the top 20 airline credits in the world, right, who are obviously you know kind of as blue chip as uh, as lessors, but for the, the other 200 airlines in the world, the lessor channel is always going to be a better counterpart for the financier. So therefore, in reality, the financier should should do those
0: deals, and the airline then focuses on what it does best, which is you know fly people around, essentially. And maybe moving on to the metal side, right, your thoughts around the most investable metal, right? So, I mean, the easy answer is narrowbody new tech, sure. Give me, give me all of those, line them up, and I'll lease them all day, and we'll come on to ESG in a moment. But but you guys play in more than that, right? Um, your thoughts on where you're seeing opportunities in the market from a metal perspective, and if you had a wish list on the type of assets you'd like to get into, what does it look like? Yeah, I mean, clearly
1: the, mo- the, the narrow-body new
0: tech and so
1: not even just all of them, but certain types, which are the most popular, will by their nature be the lowest risk and the most investable. And but equally with that comes a price point um, that ref- largely reflects that that risk profile. Clearly, when you move into other kind of niche products, whether they're regional, whether they're just the larger or smaller variants of the narrow bodies, or indeed into the wide body space you are moving into a higher risk profile because there are less of them, there are less customers and there's more risks associated with the default in terms of transitioning them. So long as you're getting paid for that risk, they can be a very interesting space and we do have quite a number of wide body aircraft that together with the credits that we have leased them to which tend to be the more uh, blue chip British Airways of the world, Iberia's and the like, but because of the asset type in, you can earn a higher return than a similar aircraft on a, on a body. But you are taking more risk, especially when it comes to the transitioning of that aircraft, when it comes off lease, or in the unlikely event with the good airlines, that there is a default, but you can never rule that out again. You know We've seen COVID has brought down many good airlines that would not have been expected to default. So there is a higher risk um, when you move out of those spaces. And I think what we've probably seen in the last number of years is you really weren't being paid for that risk. Um, whether it was a credit or whether it was the asset type, because of the, the amount of liquidity, because of the low cost of funds that everybody could tap into, when people were investing in the you know, the, the not narrow body, you know, A320, neo and, and A737 MAX 8, when you moved out of that space, you were only getting a very marginal increase in, in return for what is a, a larger risk. I think what we'll see now and are seeing now essentially is that if you are willing to move into those uh, kind of less popular spaces, you're getting paid more for the risk, which is the right way. And then you can make essentially an informed decision as part of an overall portfolio where a certain amount of your, of your business and your portfolio is invested in a, in a higher risk space and you're getting a, re, a cor, you know, correct return for that, then that is a very good business model. But if someone is focused on a niche of you know, wide body only or you know, kind of niche product only, Clearly, if they're not getting paid a a huge premium for that, they are taking a a much, much higher risk than the
0: well-diversified large lessor does can I get your thoughts then around the cargo market, right, so so one that has always been spiky, but we've probably seen, you know, a step change post-COVID in e-commerce. Can you question as to the sustainable nature of that, and is it an area that you've kind of looked closely at? It obviously has its own challenges around conversion slots, um, but just your thoughts on that market and how attractive it is or will become for aviation finance.
1: I think it, it is clearly an attractive market and I, I think it's a very, very good thing for the entire aviation space because keeping aircraft flying longer is good for everybody. You know, it the engines need flying for, for longer means more value in the part out of other engines. There's a there's more uh, shop visits happening. So generally speaking it's 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 definitely a great trend for asset values, no question about that, both wide bodies and narrow bodies. Um, Clearly there has been a shift where everybody now orders everything online and you can see a time in the future where, you know, kind of in a way the shop fronts or the shops are really just a, essentially an advertising window, but almost everything you get is going to be delivered to you. And that's going to kind of, as that comes comes kind of normal across the emerging markets in the Indonesias, Vietnams and those countries, there is going to be a continuing demand, I think, for, for cargo planes uh, to be able to service that space. Um, obviously there's been this, you know, Rush to the market in the last couple of years, um, and there will be probably some periods of oversupply because of that. But I think, kind of, with the long-term trend in mind, there is a very big market there for cargo aircraft, essentially, as as e-commerce becomes the norm, not just in the in kind of developed countries, but when it becomes the norm in the developing countries, that's going to be the real kind of driver, I think, of of demand for those products that are happening.
0: And maybe shifting gears a little bit and come to this, come to see if you can keep aircraft flying for longer and longer and longer, the environmental people will be going, why, right? Uh, and, and moving on to that ESG piece, and particularly with a focus on the E, um, your thoughts on the impact of that agenda as of now, right, on aviation finance? It's probably harder to gauge than maybe 12 months ago, as you say, lack of uh, debt and equity raises compared to where we were, but but is it actually biting, right? And the nature of conversations you might be having with investors or lenders, how high, is it lip service or is it a real and meaningful thing that you're getting quizzed on?
1: I think, well, it's certainly a real and meaningful thing that we all are deeply um, involved in and deeply believe there is no question that we have to decarbonize kind of aviation as best we can, but it's the as best we can is the point that right now, as we know, kind of you know, SAF is one of the few alternatives in reality. But even then, the a supply is very very limited and the cost is very very high. Um, Rx is heavily involved in that space uh, together with uh, Sky Energy and and Avalon. We've uh, you know kind of researched work on that, and certainly see SAF very much as the uh, you know the the the, the stop gap at least, in the transition to decarbonisation. So the reality, while obviously investors and lenders are acutely aware of the, you know, the need for, for this change, but there isn't really any alternatives. There's nothing that people can do per se. Uh, clearly, many banks in any event only want to fund new aircraft deliveries anyway. So therefore they, by their nature, are you know, most most environmentally friendly and least polluting. But you've got the case where, um, yeah, and there's obviously the whole taxonomy thing in the EU as well, and looking at the, you're parting out an aircraft when it's young is not also good for the environment either, as, as we've all pointed out, in terms of the, the kind of getting getting the use of the aircraft and it's the fuel that is the that is kind of the issue and therefore putting SAF into older aircraft and into cargo aircraft will essentially tr- tr- help them transition so it's a, there's no question it's real, but it, there isn't really any um, lever to pull I suppose yeah, right in reality yeah. so yeah. It's, it's it's one of the most important things we all talk about every day um but as I say, for the for the for the lenders themselves, there's only so much they can do. Obviously, the lessors are all, you know, very much involved of doing their own um, analysis of their own kind of uh, uh, emissions, and many have their own charters. Uh, so it's very much front of mind. It's very much what we're all kind of uh, focused on. In Aurex, obviously, we're with Avalon. We're invested in vertical, which is the electric air, aircraft. As I say, we're doing a lot on the SAF space. So there's a lot kind of coming but it's but as i say right now there
0: is essentially no alternative to what yeah. what we're doing and can i probe a little bit in Saf, because i saw that partnership announced it's really interesting because you would say you know here here in if you look at large lessors, huge knowledge of the space huge knowledge at raising funding and delivering to investors what what is needed to uncork that in a real way it seems to be technological developments, but also probably government support. How do you kind of rank the importance of those and just how near are we to, to kind of breaking barriers that need to be broken? Yeah, and look, there's trendsetters and actually the US is really, especially certain
1: states like California, but the US generally has, is giving huge incentives now for the kind of SAF production and for airlines to move to SAF. <clears throat> that, I think I saw something actually in today or yesterday's Financial Times about the, the EU kind of, um, are identifying that as a essentially as a business risk that if they don 't follow suit they 'll get left behind, so I think there 's this kind of um, follow the leader to some degree that if everybody 's doing it it 's going to become the norm and I think that 's what we 'll see is the u s first then Europe will start to offer incentives. I would imagine then that they will follow the incentives essentially with the disincentives, so presumably they will if the the more they kind of give to SAF in terms of credits, the more they will take from traditional aviation fuel and they can increase taxes on one to subsidize the other. And essentially, if you can kind of, the closer you can bring the two, then it becomes a meaningful decision that you're just doing the right thing essentially. Um, And I think that's where it'll get to, whether it's three years, five years, seven years, uh, I'm not sure, but I certainly don't think it's much beyond, let's say 2030, where in reality from a, Economic point of view, that SAF is going to be the kind of the, the really the, the only alternative because of both the, the incentives to, to do it and the disincentives to use the traditional fuel.
0: Yeah, the, reg- the regulatory stick is clearly coming. Um, can you answer James to say, as we sit here in late 2022, in, in closing, as you look out into next year, what are your optimism levels like? I think it's going to be a year of two halves. I think
1: the first half of the year is going to be very challenging. Um, the winter traditionally for airlines obviously is the time when they struggle their loss making, um, so I think what with their debt levels, interest rates, the dollar and with the general recessionary environment for consumers where they're going to reduce cons- uh, uh, spending essentially, then we're going to see quite a few challenges for airlines and maybe bankruptcy restructurings. For the lessors, I forecast that the bond market will remain largely closed for the first quarter at least, so it's going to be a, you know, a tough winter first half. I think second half into the summer, we're going to see China reopen for travel, re- reduce restrictions and like we saw in Europe and the, and the US, when those restrictions dropped and people could travel, they have travelled you know, as much as they could and they the 1.2 billion people in China who've been restricted for up to three years. Uh, I think will be a huge boom to the market especially in in Asia and Southeast Asia who have suffered the most from the pandemic hopefully they'll see one of the biggest kind of um, benefits essentially from that China reopening so I think as we get through the summer then and most analysts and currency specialists forecast the dollar to start weakening uh, through 2023 and oil to start weakening because of the general slowdown in the world and the kind of recession that's forecast so I think you see you know Weaker dollar, cheaper oil, China reopening. It's kind of, a, in a way, a a perfect um, environment for airlines and leasing companies to flourish. So the second half of the year, I'm far more optimistic. Um, But the first half, I think, going to be very tough.
0: Well James, on that semi optimistic note, um I'd like to on behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, thank you as always for your insights and I wish you and Oryx a very successful twenty twenty three. Thank you, Joe, and thank you to
1: KPMG and
0: Airline Economics. It's a, a great programme and delighted to be part of it.